Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're actually going to uh, be looking at two different passages this morning. Uh, the first passage will be Luke 22, so if you want to turn there. If you have your Version app, I think we still, um, you can use that, maybe find the live services and click that. It'll show you the uh, information. You can also pull out the insert in your bulletin, make some notes, follow along. <clears throat> We've been tracing the life of Jesus Christ chronologically, and so for two years we've been in a sermon series called In His Steps, where we have walked through Christ's life. Now we have arrived at Christ's final week, Passion Week, and uh, so this series is called The Final Steps, and we've arrived at Thursday night. Last Sunday, if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and watch the video on YouTube because uh, we covered Christ in the Passover. Normally that's done in the spring when Passover occurs, but we've arrived at the Last Supper when Jesus uh, celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And so we encourage you to go back and watch that because that is going to explain the Passover festival to you and it's going to explain how Christ fulfilled the Passover. So there's all these little pieces, these little elements to the Passover traditions and prayers and, and parts of the service that will be explained and you will see communion in a brand new way by uh, checking that out. So we're still in Thursday. We're still on Thursday of Christ's final week. And um, so there are a lot of events, or a lot of things that actually happened at the Passover meal. And this was the final time that Jesus would celebrate Passover. It was the final time Jesus would even really sit down and, and uh, have a meal with the disciples before he would go to the cross. And so he went through the Passover meal, and he went through the ceremony, and he was trying to help them understand how it was going to take on a whole new context once Jesus became the final Passover lamb that was slain. And so Judas Iscariot, in this Passover, he was exposed as the betrayer of Christ, and he left the meal to sell Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. This Passover meal was Christ's last meal before heading to the cross. This was his last night with them before all of the coming chaos kicked in. The disciples didn't know that Jesus was going to be betrayed by Judas, but he did. The disciples didn't know that Jesus would be arrested late that night, but Jesus did. The disciples didn't know that Jesus would be killed right in front of their very eyes through crucifixion, but Jesus did. And they didn't know this was their last peaceful moment with Jesus, but he did. And more than any other writer, John, the Gospel of John, which we'll get to in just a moment, he emphasized Jesus was on a heavenly timetable. Three times in John's gospel, he referred to the statement, the hour has not yet come. And three times in John's gospel, he refers to the statement, the hour is come. And so he is trying to express to us that Jesus is on a heavenly timetable. The easiest way for us to kind of put this into our understanding, uh, maybe an analogy we could use is a wedding day. When you're in a wedding or when you're the one getting married, there is so much preparation that goes into the ceremony. uh, There's so much that needs to be done. 
And honestly, guys, we just like, we're just like, just let us know what day to show up. Because the ladies are like, it's got to look like this. I mean, since they are, you know, eight or ten years old, they've been cutting out, you know, things from bridal magazines and posting it into scrapbooks. And they know what they want their dress to look like and their colors and, and all of this stuff. And so they have to make all these decisions. Flowers, caterers, decorations, outfits, selecting the bridesmaids and groomsmen, how many there will be, if any. Choosing who and who will not be invited. The location, the music, the reception, the photographers, videographers, the minister or justice of the peace, getting the wedding license, and so much more. And so there's so much that goes into that big day that it can be very overwhelming, which is why the term was created bridezilla, because the bride is shouldering all of that stress unless she can find somebody to get to put it on like a, a good maid of honor or whatever. And so she's shouldering all of that stress about all the things she wants to be perfect. And. If you want everything done perfectly, it takes a lot of time and a lot of preparation to get it that way. And all of that builds to one unforgettable moment in time. For a wedding, it's all about dividing your time between not yet here and it's finally here. And in that moment, before you walk down the aisle to exchange vows, Hopefully, you take a deep breath and you realize the hour is come. The time has arrived. All the things that you've worked for, all of the preparation you put into, it will now separate your life from one being single to one being married. Whether you're the bride or the groom walking down the aisle are the steps that you'll take that will move you from one category into the other. And until you make that walk, the hour has not yet come. But when you step in front of the minister, the time has arrived. And I hope you've already made up your mind what you'll say before you get there. Because there's nothing worse than when the minister asks someone to say their vows and there's silence. It's like, did you, did you miss your cue? Should I say it again? No, 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 I'm thinking. Hold on. The time to think about whether you should or shouldn't do it has passed. You should have already made up your mind before you walked up there. So here Jesus and the disciples have arrived at the hour he's been waiting for. From the human point of view, we know that it meant suffering. But from the divine point of view, we know that it means glory, that Christ would soon leave this world and he would return to the Father who sent him. This was his last moment with the disciples to instill in them something that would last, to have a memorial of his ministry and his teaching. And unfortunately, the disciples were fairly oblivious to it. They missed so much of the symbols. Hopefully last week, if you were able to watch Christ in the Passover, you were able to be here with us. You had one of those aha moments where something in that ceremony became very real, that you saw it in a new way. 
And Jesus is trying to explain how he fulfills the Passover to his disciples. But they missed so much of it. They missed so many clues that Jesus gave them. They completely missed the point. And we know they missed the point because the disciples started an argument during the meal. In this most sacred of moments, when Jesus was fixing his face like a stone towards the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the beating, the crucifixion, and the death he would face in the next 18 hours, the disciples picked a fight at dinner. Luke 22, verse 24. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. Now, we've already dealt with a conversation when the disciples, when the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, um, would you please allow my sons to sit on, when you come into your kingdom, would you allow my sons to sit on your right and on your left? And so we've already covered a conversation that Jesus has with this mother, really his, his I believe his aunt, um, or a second cousin. So he's related to James and John. He's related to Salome, the mother of James and John. And uh, she asks, maybe, you know, since we've got some family connection to you, that you'll allow my sons to sit on either side of you when it comes, when you come into glory. And so Jesus has already dealt with this. That's not for me to decide, but it's for who that position has been prepared for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to endure what I will endure? And they said, we will. And we, we think, how arrogant. But I mean, sometimes we behave the same way. We're like, I'll give anything for you, Jesus. And then the heat gets turned on and well, you know, we, we kind of, reminisce and we, we kind of think uh, maybe it's like meatloaf I would do anything for you Jesus but I won't do that and, and you can define what that is but it's whatever it is when the heat gets turned on and so here again during Passover when Jesus is explaining the meal and the symbolism and he's he's I mean, he's just got to be overwhelmed with emotion how he will fulfill Passover and how this is their last time to be together. And what do these guys do? They start an argument. The word dispute here means a love of strife or an eagerness to contend and argue. There's always that person that loves to stir up an argument. There's that person that just likes to throw out some random statement, some controversial statement, you know, who, who joins a Facebook group f- for one party and then throws out a, a crazy statement to get all those people riled up, you know. And every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, you may, you may start to remember about that one person in your family that you really don't want to invite to dinner because you know They're going to bring up politics at the dinner table. And look, I don't want to talk about it. Or whatever the hot button issue is, whatever the thing is in your family that y'all can't agree on. 
Most families say no religion, no politics at the dinner table because it's just going to make people angry and I'm just going to throw a drumstick at your head. The turkey drumstick. Or maybe it's a dinner full of drummers and real drumsticks get thrown around. I don't know. But at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, family gatherings, I always tell people, folks, funerals and weddings manage to bring out the worst in people. Because for some people, it's a special occasion and it needs to be about me. I know I'm not getting married. I know I'm not the person that died, but I'm here. So let's make it about me. And we have, there are people that we may know. And if you don't know any, maybe you are that people. We don't know who brought it up in this passage. um, And we don't know really who was involved in the conversation between these disciples of of who uh, was the greatest. Um, Only Luke covers this story. He's the only gospel writer that included this story in his account of the evening's events. Now, there were certainly some disciples that could make the claim. Peter was the spokesman of the group on many occasions. When Jesus asked a question, a lot of times it was Peter who just shot his mouth off. When Jesus was walking on the water, Peter was the one who said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out so I can walk on water too. And of course, you know, we know the story. Uh, most of us know the story. He, he got out, he started walking, but then he got his eyes off Jesus and got his eyes on the storm, which we often do as well. And he began to sink. And we talk about what Jesus said to Peter. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And I think that's not only meant for Peter as he's sinking, but it's also meant for the 11 disciples that didn't even have enough faith to get out of the boat. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And so um, Peter was a bit of a loud mouth. And he could make some really bold statements. He was in Jesus' inner circle. So sometimes when Jesus decided to take uh, some, some disciples farther on to the Mount of Transfiguration, um, you know, into other places, he took Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. These three inner circle disciples with him. Um, more than the other disciples got to go. And so maybe Peter s- spoke up and he says, well, all right, let's look at this. If you want to be realistic, Jesus called me the rock. And he said, the gates of hell would not prevail against me. And I'm sure one of the other disciples might have said, you are taking that out of context, Peter, and you know it. James and John might have made their case. After all, Jesus called them sons of thunder. And if you want a really cool nickname or a cool metal band, sons of thunder would really qualify. Andrew might have spoken up and said, wait, wait, wait. I have been the best missionary. I have brought more people to Jesus than all of you combined. Simon the Zealot may have spoken up and said, you know, this group needs a leader and a leader that can overthrow Rome. And the Zealots were a political party. And so he might have said, look, they were an extremist political party. And he said, look, I should be at the top of the list because I've got political connections and we can really sock it to Rome. 
Let me tell you, a leader never has to say that he or she is the leader. People just naturally want to follow them. If you've ever been in a conference meeting, in a a meeting at work, with let's say 10 or more people, and a question gets asked, people will instinctively look to the leaders of the room to be the first to answer the question. And so a leader doesn't have to say, I'm the leader. Because in fact, if the leader says, I'm the leader, they're not really the leader. A leader doesn't have to say that they're the leader. People just naturally follow them. The leader arises and stands up. When the moment comes, when the moment arises, the leader stands up when everyone else stays seated. The leader speaks up when everyone else is silent. And when the disciples interrupted this sacred moment with Jesus to have a verbal altercation, Jesus stood up. And while Luke is the only gospel writer that included the part about the argument, John is the only gospel writer to include what Jesus did to end the argument. John chapter 13. This is where we pick up the story. Verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When we look at the example of Jesus to see what it means to lead, and and you can fill in a blank if you've got it, we see that first, godly leading means serving. Godly leading means serving. The disciples must have been shocked by what Jesus did. He didn't say a word. They're the ones talking. They're the ones arguing. He gets up without a word. He stood up. He tied a towel around his waist, got a bowl of water, and went one by one to the disciples to wash their feet. Now, foot washing was needed in this culture. The streets were dusty. People wore sandals. They didn't wear socks. They didn't exist yet. Dirt and dust would be caked on a person's feet if they didn't wash them often. And when a rich person had a banquet, They would provide a servant to wash the dust off of the feet of those in attendance. It was a breach of hospitality to not provide that. But the host of the banquet, the master of the home, never washed the feet of another. That was a lowly servant's job. The argument the disciples had and might have still been having when Jesus began, began this humble task, was silenced. And it silenced every one of them in the room. Jesus was giving a lesson in humility and service that none of them would ever forget. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Simon cried out, Lord, do you wash my feet? The you there is emphatic. It's almost accusatory. Do you wash my feet? He couldn't wrap his brain around it. 
why in the world would the most important man who ever lived get on his hands and knees and wash the dust off of his feet? It was beneath him. Peter knew that the roles really should be reversed. If anything, it should be Peter washing Jesus' feet. Jesus simply replied, what I'm doing, you don't realize or perceive now, but you will understand later. So what was Peter's response? Well, in John 13, 8, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. It's a funny thing to tell Jesus of all people, God forbid it. Because that's the expression in in the original language, God forbid that you should wash my feet. And Jesus is like, well, I, I'm God, and I don't forbid it. I'm doing it. What are you doing? Peter didn't realize this lesson in kingdom leadership. A godly leader must serve others. And when Peter voiced his opposition to what Jesus was doing, Jesus replied, if I do not wash you, you have no share, no portion, no part with me. If these disciples didn't understand kingdom leadership before the heat got cranked up on them, they never would. Jesus needed them to see how to behave when this movement really began to take off. So what was Peter's response to Jesus next? John 13, 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Simon going overboard again. But it's something that's really easy for us to do. God says, I want to do this. And we say, well, Lord, why stop there? Go big or go home, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, just this one thing we'll do. Then Jesus explained why he did what he did. John 13, 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, some groups have taken foot washing to be an ordinance of the church, like water baptism and communion. However, others see it, as Jesus said, as an example or a pattern of serving others. Because it's really hard to wash someone's feet or to serve them sacrificially if you think you're better than them. It's really hard to wash somebody's feet or to serve them sacrificially if you think you're better than them. And that brings us to point number two. Godly serving is rooted in humility. <clears throat> Godly serving is rooted in in humility. I think humility is one of the most difficult character traits to acquire. Sin had its origin in pride. 
the opposite of humility. We were born with that same sinful nature to always put our needs above the needs of others. Satan tempts us to exert our pride, our arrogance, to have our way to push our agenda. Even the word iniquity, which is another word for sin, has three eyes in it. It's all about what I want, what I need, and what I can get. Humility is incredibly difficult to master. It is the humility is the willful rejection of your own pride. It is a deliberate action. It is never accidental. You've never met somebody who was accidentally humble. You've only met people who are deliberately and intentionally humble. If you don't deliberately behave with humility, you will instinctively fall back into patterns of pride. If you do not deliberately choose to behave with humility, you will instinctively, it is part of your sinful nature, to revert to patterns of pride. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Putting someone else's needs, someone else's desires and wants above your own. It is focusing on the needs of others before your own needs. It's never easy because it doesn't come natural to us. But it is necessary for kingdom leadership. The pastor and commentator Warren Wearsby wrote this. He said, Jesus was the sovereign, and yet he took the place of a servant. He had all things in his hands, and yet he picked up a towel. He was Lord and master, and yet he served his followers. Notice what Jesus said at the end of the passage we read. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It seems that God blesses his followers not for what they know, but for what they do. How they respond to what they know. Because if somebody says, I don't have a problem with pride, I know all about humility. Okay, but do you behave humble? Do you act with humility? Well, no, I mean, who's got time for that? Who can even do it? But I know all about it. Andrew Murray wrote this. He said, the lack of humility is the sufficient explanation for every defect and failure. Let me read it again. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation for every defect and failure. That is the truth. If I look back over my life, the vast majority of my sinful behavior, my personal failures, and my character flaws are rooted in a lack of humility in those moments. And it's really hard. It's hard when someone comes at you and criticizes you to not open your mouth unless you open it in humility. 
someone attacks you at your job or someone attacks your performance or or your your spot in my house you know it's it's folding the towels look there's one right way to fold the towels and it's the way my mother taught me to fold the towels and i don't care how your mother taught you to fold the towels she's clearly not right okay one way and it's my way and so it's easy for us to say you need to do it my way. And that can be a source of contention within a marriage, especially a young marriage. And if you are newlyweds or fairly newlywed, just assign one person to fold the towels. Because when two people take turns, it is chaos. They don't fit in the closet because it's two different kinds of folding. And so it's, it's all about me seeing, I mean, loading the dishwasher. That's not a problem with my wife. But it's other people in my home. <laughs> There's one right way to load the dishwasher. To, to have maximum amount of dishes in the dishwasher. And, but when we push... Our way above another person. Now, you know, I mean, some, sometimes people just need to be taught. They don't know the right way until they're taught. So you teach them the right way. Now, if they keep doing it the wrong way, well, then that's just not going to work. <clears throat> but we have to focus on humility as opposed to pride. And when someone criticizes us, when, when they won't do it the way I want them to do it, let's just say Micah, because he's here, um, when he doesn't do it the way I want him to do it, then he has to decide how he'll respond to me. Because I've decided that my way is best, and generally it is, but then he's got to decide, am I going to defend, is he going to defend himself? Or is he going to respond in humility? Yes, Father. And that really should always be the response. <laughs> At least in my house. Yes, Father. Whatever you say, Father, I'll do it immediately. And my response is thank you. It's gratitude when someone responds with humility. But when we get criticized and when we get, uh, you know, when, when, when somebody um, attacks us personally or, or just um, they, they give us feedback and, and maybe we don't want the feedback. Maybe the feedback is negative or whatever. It is so easy to respond with pride and arrogance, and that is the enemy puffing us up with pride because we don't want to hear it. We don't want to respond in humility. And, and when I look back over my life and I see those moments when I, had a, 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 when I responded poorly, when I responded sinfully in that situation, I see it was because I lacked humility. I was operating in pride rather than humility. I was putting my wants above the needs of others. I was criticized and I responded with anger and frustration rather than, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 5, being clothed with humility. Being clothed with humility. When you walk outside and it's raining, you immediately know if you prepared properly. If you have a rain jacket on, it's fine. 
But if you don't, if you just have a T-shirt or a regular shirt and it's pouring down raining, you did not clothe yourself properly and you know immediately that you didn't. When it's freezing cold outside, and it doesn't really get freezing cold here that much, but if you go to Montana in January and you walk outside, you'll know whether you clothe yourself properly. And Peter exhorts us to clothe ourselves in humility, to let it wrap us up so that we are, feel its presence with us before we respond. The final thing we see in Christ's example here is that humble leadership empowers others. Nobody wants to serve an arrogant leader. If you have a boss that's arrogant, full of pride, you hate it. Because they never make any mistakes, and you're always to blame. Good leadership deflects all of the praise and absorbs all of the criticism. Now, it ain't easy. Not a bit. But that's what it takes to be a good leader. And so a humble leader empowers others. One of the earliest rabbis said to his disciples, he said, cover yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. And the idea of being covered, having your feet covered in the dust of your rabbi's feet um, would be something that everybody in this Middle Eastern culture would understand and have seen. Because you would see a rabbi walking down these dusty roads and behind him, right behind him, were his group of disciples. And they were doing their best to try to keep up with this rabbi as he went about from place to place teaching. And by the end of the day, walking in the dirt directly behind their rabbi, the students would have the dust from his feet all over their feet. And when Jesus, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he showed true humility. He, trod, he showed servanthood. But the unseen interpretation to most people is that Jesus was washing his dust off of their feet. Why would he do that? Because the time was at hand. He had taught them. He had modeled kingdom behavior for several years now. And that very weekend, the new covenant would come into full effect. And within 40 days, he would leave them, having given them all the authority to go and make their own disciples. He had already told them on two occasions that whatever they bind or loose on earth will be bound and loosed in heaven. He'd given them authority. And now he's given them the ability to go and make their own disciples. He wants them to bring more people into this movement. So Jesus washed his dust off of their feet so they can go make disciples who are covered in the dust of their feet. Remember, Peter's objection, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus replied, if I don't do this, you won't be part of what I'm doing. So Peter responded, then wash everything. Jesus, not just my feet, wash my hands, wash my head. In essence, we assume that Peter was saying, Jesus, I not only want to go where you're going, but I want to do what I've seen you do, and I want to think like you think. And possibly Peter was thinking of the mikvah, which is the Old Testament word for baptism. When Jews would touch a dead body or when they would touch something that was ceremonially unclean, they had to baptize themselves in water 
to become clean again for to attend temple. And so that was called a mikvah or a baptism. It was a complete immersion into water. And they put on new clothes and they were clean. And so uh, Peter was probably thinking that washing his feet wasn't enough. That he, he knew he wasn't nearly as clean as he needed to be. And so if Jesus was going to clean his feet, he needed to clean his hands and his head as well. But Jesus brought Peter back to the point, And he said, just your feet will do. Jesus saw the condition of Peter's heart. Jesus knew the actions that Peter would take that weekend. The things that Peter would say, things that Peter would do. Jesus knew that Peter's betrayal would result in repentance and restoration. Peter didn't need a bath. He just needed to see servant leadership modeled. Worship team, come on up. Those of you who are candidates for baptism, if you would go ahead, slip out and get dressed and then come sit up here on the front row uh, in front of the altar. When we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our sins are covered. And while it may be easy for us from time to time when we sin again to feel as though we are unclean, unworthy, Christ says we are covered by the blood. When the angel of the Lord passed over the homes in Egypt that night of the first Passover, the Bible says that God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and destruction will not come near your home. So when God sees the blood that is over the doorpost of our hearts, destruction does not come near us. God's presence is not there to judge us and condemn us and destroy us. God's presence is there to protect us. And so when we apply the blood to our hearts, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our sins are covered, our lives are made new, we are forgiven. God promised that in Hebrews chapter 10, He chooses not to remember our sins and iniquities. The one perfect being with a perfect memory chooses to forget things. And he chooses to do that because he loves us so completely. He could not love us and still hold the weight of our sins over our heads. He chooses to forgive. He chooses to forget. Jesus modeled servant leadership at every moment of his earthly ministry. And he calls us to do the same. Godly leading means serving. Godly serving requires humility. And humility empowers others to be servants because they've seen it modeled. If there's an example for us to model our lives after... It is the model of Jesus Christ. As we're about to sing, if there's one thing that we need to build our life upon, it is Jesus Christ, the solid rock. All other foundations are deficient. He is the only true rock 
on which our lives can be built.